a life that's available and given over to God. That really is a summary of our topic this morning as we continue in our series uh, looking at a few spiritual disciplines. You might recall that the six weeks leading up to Easter, we looked together at uh, the person of Jesus and who He is and what a relationship personally brings for your life uh, in walking with Him. And since Easter, we've been looking at, at ways that we grow in that relationship. What are the things that God has invited us into and offered us by way of practices, by way of habits that we enter into and engage in, or sometimes things we stop doing so that we can see the person of Christ growing more evident and prevalent in our life. Today we're focusing on worship and thinking about worship together as a spiritual discipline, not just something we do or uh, when Sundays roll around we come to worship, but looking at it as a spiritual discipline. And I'm so pleased that Steve and I are going to have a tandem sermon today. So you get a little bit of both of us and a topic he knows a lot about. Uh, But we're going to be investigating worship through the lens of Isaiah's encounter with God in Isaiah chapter 6 and what we learn from that amazing scene. And Steve's going to get us started. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Again, my name is Steve Howell. It has been a blessing uh, to be in worship and to lead in worship uh, with Tiburon Baptist Church over the course of the last three and a half years. And this is one of um, my favorite hours and uh, mornings of the of the week where we get to spend time um, hearing God's word, singing God's songs, um, coming to the Lord in prayer. And so uh, that is a joy. This morning, as Pastor Bryce mentioned, uh, we're going to talk about the discipline of worship. Uh, but even saying that kind of begs the question, so what is worship? Um, I mean, that's kind of what we've been doing during this particular time. This is called a, a worship service. Uh, well, the word worship actually comes from an old English word that basically means worth ship. And so when we gather together and we worship God, we are declaring his worth. He is worthy of our worship, and we sing a song to that very effect. He is worthy of our worship, and so much more. So declaring worth is actually something we come by pretty naturally. I have a question for you real quick. Uh, Let me ask you this. Does anybody have a sports team that you regularly watch? Does anybody have a team that you watch? I see a few hands. What's that? Go Warriors. Go Warriors. All right. Uh, Well, maybe it's a football team or a soccer team or a basketball team, hockey uh, or baseball or any other sport that you may watch. Um, But if you have a team that you follow, you likely know the players, you know the team name, the mascot, and probably you know the sport inside and out. Uh, Let me ask you this, though. When your team scores, how do you respond? Do you fold your hands nicely and say, yay? I don't imagine so. Uh, Is your response meek or mild, or do you declare what that goal is worth to you? At our home, we have neighbors who live above our apartments, and we have to be careful about when we're watching our favorite teams that we don't declare too loudly just how happy we are when one of our teams scores. Um, I can assure you that for those who are in the stadiums or in the arenas watching those sporting events, that they are emphatically declaring the worth of their team and every touchdown, goal, or basket that they make. So we know what worship is. Declaring something or someone's worth 
worship. But then, how is it then that worship is a discipline? Well, as followers of Christ, uh, as Christians, worshiping God is a practice that we engage in both personally as well as corporately on a weekly basis and even on a daily basis. I mean, if you're here this morning, uh, there's a strong likelihood that you were here last Sunday. Uh, And if not, then we are glad that you are here today. Uh, We know that worship is not just a one and done activity. We believe that there is value in gathering regularly with others who desire to worship God together. The book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As this scripture says, gathering together to worship God regularly is an opportunity to encourage one another and to stir one another to love and good works. So worship, declaring God's worth, is a regular part of our life as followers of Jesus. This morning we're going to look at a scripture passage that provides a shining example of an encounter with God that resulted in worship. So this morning we're going to look and be reading from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. So if you'd like to take your Bibles, you're welcome to do so. Uh, Let's turn together to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And I'll read these for us this morning. Again, Isaiah chapter 6, the first eight verses. It says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Can we pray briefly? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this time set apart from other times throughout the week, to worship you corporately. We pray that as we read and study your word together, together that you would teach us about worship, help us to recognize and to declare that you are worthy of worship and holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, Isaiah describes seeing the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. You know, we can read those words so quickly, and yet we really need to allow those words to dwell in our minds as an an image that we uh, consider a little bit longer. Isaiah saw the Lord seated on his heavenly throne, high and lifted up, and the garments that he wore, his robe, 
filled the temple. That must have been an incredible sight, an incredible experience, and awe-inspiring. In Isaiah's vision, God shares two images with us that help us to understand who he is. He shares a throne and a temple. I mean, who sits on a throne? A king. What happens in a temple? Worship. And so God is showing Isaiah and us that he is the king, the sovereign of the universe, who is worthy of worship. I also think that it's significant in that in the year the king Uzziah died, at the time when Judah's king is no longer on his throne, God shows himself to be on his eternal throne. Now, it's worth noting that Isaiah didn't conjure up God's appearance. He didn't make God appear. No, God revealed himself to Isaiah, which brings us then to our first point this morning about worship. Worship begins with God revealing himself to us. God showed himself to Isaiah. God showed himself on his throne, and God showed himself in his temple. If worship is declaring God's worth, then he is the one who has revealed his worth to us. He is the one who has told us who he is, what he is like, and what he has done. Some of that we can see just in looking at the world that is around us. We can see the beautiful creation and recognize that God is an awesome creator. But God also has given us his word, the Bible, which we've had the opportunity to read numerous times this morning, to tell us specifically about himself and what he's done. You know, we are able to declare that God is faithful Because he has told us that he is faithful. And then we read example after example of his faithfulness in the Bible. And then we've experienced his faithfulness in our own lives. So God's given us his word, the Bible, which inspires and informs and infuses our worship with the truths that he has shared with us about himself. But then God has revealed himself in an even greater way. God's greatest revelation is the word made flesh. His son, Jesus Christ. Referring to Jesus, the Apostle Paul writes this in chapter 1 of the book of Colossians. He says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All these things were created through him and for him. So Jesus is the invisible God made visible. Emmanuel, we talk about that at Christmas time often, God with us. Jesus is God the Son in all of his majesty, glory, and power. God has revealed himself through his creation, his word, and his Son, Jesus Christ. And God's revealing himself is the basis for our worship. Now what do we do when God reveals himself? Well, we've seen in this example that then we have a response to make. Um, Before... I talk about that. Um, Let's look at the response that follows the Lord's description of himself back in Isaiah 6. After describing, this will be verse 2 and verse 3. After describing God seated on the throne and the train of his robe filling the temple, Isaiah gives us a glimpse of what's taking place around the throne. In verse 2 and 3, he says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now the word seraphim, that means the burning ones. And these burning ones are calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy. These words were originally written in the Hebrew language. And apparently, the repetition of the word, like holy, 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 is a way of expressing the idea of a superlative. So, you know, like like great, greater, 
greatest. So by repeating holy, 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 the seraphs are declaring that God is completely, totally, absolutely the holiest of the holy. Holiness is the essence of God's nature, and God himself is the supreme revelation of holiness. So in light of God revealing his holiness, the seraphim respond by declaring his holiness. So this brings us to our second point about worship. First of all, worship begins with God revealing himself to us, and then worship involves our responding to God in light of what he has told us about himself. God's revealing himself is followed by our responding in adoration and praise. Even our gatherings, when we get together like this, when we have our time of worship, these reflect our desire to worship God in light of who he has revealed himself to be. So we sing together songs of worship that reflect his word because he's worthy of our praises. Praises. We pray together because he's invited us to do so and he's told us that he hears his prayers. We read his scriptures because he has told us not to neglect the reading of his word and to hide his words in our hearts. We fellowship together because our faith is meant to be shared and not just a solitary experience. We worship through our giving, through offerings, responding to God's generosity to us by being generous to him in return. And then lastly, we listen to the word of God preached in order to hear from him and to respond to his majesty, his power, and his love. These are some of the ways that we respond in worship right here together in this place when we gather for worship. Isaiah's vision of seeing the Lord and hearing the response of the seraphs declaring, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, it must have been awe-inspiring. Because God's absolute holiness reveals how separate, how different, how totally other he is in comparison to all the other aspects of his created world. Now Pastor Bryce is going to share and continue um, telling us about God's holiness and how Isaiah then responded to experiencing it. All right. Thank you, Steve. So God has revealed himself. We would know nothing about God had he not first chosen to show himself to us. And then when God shows up and shows himself off, it demands and requires a response. There is no nothing else to do other than respond. What we find next in Isaiah's uh, encounter is that Isaiah recognized something about God didn't just recognize a face, he recognized something about God. And here's what's interesting. This, this passage begins by mentioning King Uzziah. And King Uzziah was one who ruled. This is back when Israel was divided into two different kingdoms. And King Uzziah was a, a leader of the southern kingdom. And he had done a lot of great things and was very faithful in many ways. But he had and he also grown in his great strength. And uh, he was an impressive guy. And he uh, that led to a, a, a season of real deep-seated pride for him. And he ended up going into the temple, a place that God had given very specific instructions about who should go in and when they should go in. And King Uzziah presumptuously takes it on himself that he would go in and burn incense in the temple. And God, out of his mercy, um, disciplined Uzziah instead of something else that could have happened. And so for the rest of Uzziah's um, tenure as king, he suffered with leprosy as a reminder about that presumptuous coming into the temple. Now, Isaiah, it reminds us that Uzziah has died and now Isaiah in his vision sees himself right in the middle of the same temple where for years King Uzziah had been a reminder that you don't go there. Isaiah knew the rules. He knew he shouldn't be there. 
And here he is in his response in recognizing the holiness of God. What is his response? Woe is me, for I am ruined. Why? Because he recognized the intensity of God's holiness. Not that God was bad, but that His holiness, in fact, was so good, there was an intensity that came with it. What does God's holiness mean? Let's watch a short video that will help us understand a little bit better of God's holiness. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So... God is holy because he's more perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system. It's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful light on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further, in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear. And God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. Fact, that intensity of God's holiness is explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the Most Holy Place. It's a hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So, how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So, like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple, and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, 
And then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable. Because normally, if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurities to you. But now there's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah, and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple, and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream, and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? We don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure. People with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding, or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness, and that he and his followers were now God's temple, so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now, but... Where is this all headed? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. The holiness of God, pretty neat, right? Isn't God good in the way He's designed things, in who He is, and the fact that He would even care to come and be with you or me or us? It's just amazing. Um, Isaiah recognizes the holiness of God, and he recognizes, as you stand in front and understand the holiness of God, you can't help but to understand your own sinfulness, your impurity compared to God's Holiness, And so primarily when we come to worship, we come as people who come to give ourselves back to God. We come as people who, who come to lay our lives down in humble thanksgiving to God and say, do with my life what you will. But God also offers some things that we look for in worship that we are to receive. And we see them in Isaiah's account. That we, we, we receive things from God, and, and as we accept them, it then forces adjustments in our life. And there's two things primarily that are highlighted that Isaiah receives from God. Number one, it's cleansing. It's cleansing. And number two, it is a commission. So God offers a cleansing of life, a purity, but He also offers a commission 
a purpose, something that you go out and, and arrange your life around so that you can also participate in the things of God. Isaiah, the, the, the cleansing comes with that hot coal and, and fires, things that are really hot like that in the Scripture are also uh, almost always referred to as things that are refining. They, they heat up so hot that, that impure things become clean and pure again. God is described as a refining fire because of this. Isaiah, he, in this image, it comes and, and that, that coal is, singes his lips to purify his life. And Jesus is the one who brings purity as well. You might remember when Jesus came um, and the, John chapter 13 and that, that picture of the Last Supper as, uh, as he's um, serving and he's washing feet. You might remember he comes to Peter to wash Peter's feet and Peter objects. Peter says, there's no way, Jesus, I'm going to let you wash my feet. Do you remember what Jesus said? He says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. It's this cleansing that Jesus comes into life to offer. So when we talk about a personal relationship with Jesus, in a big measure, it's about the cleansing and the purifying work of God in our lives so that then we are instruments to be uh, usable in the service of God. That's just what Jesus brings. I can hardly talk about when I prepare people for baptism it's, it's almost become comical to me because I, when we get to the part about the redemption of, of Jesus and, and how we are so undeserving of God's love and His work on the cross, but yet He does it not because I'm deserving of it, but He does it because He loves me in spite of me. And when I talk to people about it, almost every time I get teary-eyed because I'm overwhelmed with the idea that a holy God would come into new lives like yours and mine and, and bring purity and cleanliness to us so that we're transformed from the inside out. So that our heart is singed in God. We receive the cleansing and Jesus brings that to us. Jesus, like Isaiah, was given a commission. Remember God says, who will go for us and, and whom shall we send? And Isaiah kind of raises his hand and says, here am I. Send me the last words of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28. Jesus also gives a great commission. And He gives it not just to a pastor or church leader or those specially called to missions. He gives it to the church. And He gives this commission to every follower of Jesus is that together we would go into all the earth and we would make disciples and we would baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we would teach them to obey all that Jesus has taught us so that we can live a life of purity with Christ Jesus. That is the commission that we are given. And when I think about what does a commission mean, it's about being available to God. And I love what Anne Graham Lotz once wrote. She says, one of the lasting impacts of personal revival is that it has made a difference in my life. I not only listen to the voice of Jesus and apply His words to my life, but I live for Him alone. I am so caught up in who He is and what He has done for me that I no longer consider my life my own. My life is laid down at His nail-pierced feet, totally available for His use, anytime, anywhere, anyway. The supreme joy of my life 
is to be available to Him. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means. She has described so well what it means to enter into the commission of God for our lives. And so in closing this morning, I ask two questions of you. One is, why do you worship? Why do you come here Sunday after Sunday or um, whenever you might be able to come? Do you come seeking to be available to King Jesus as he sits on his throne, high and exalted, and he calls into your life and speaks into your life? Are you available? Are you willing to adjust the areas of your life that he asks you to adjust so that he can weave purity and cleanliness into your life? Do you come to to be entertained with what happens here on this platform? Because I love Soren Kierkegaard's picture of worship is that uh, we don't come like we might to a theater where we're looking to be entertained with what happens up on this platform as if you're an audience and, and we are performers for you. Worship is better pictured, I think, in understanding that all of us are on stage performing for an audience of one. And that that's why we do these things together. It's a common expression of worship. So we don't come to worship to be entertained. We don't come leaving or we don't leave the space and say, ah, that sermon stank or, ah, oh, that music, I don't know. That's not why we come to worship. You come to worship to be reminded of God's revelation and to recognize His holiness and to respond to that holiness in being reminded of the cleansing and the commission that you have been given. When you worship, is that what you recognize? The holiness of God as a parent. And you worship with your children. Are you a worship coach for those children? Who better for your kids to learn how to worship than from you, from watching a dad sing the songs of the church and of the faith, songs like we've sung today, hundreds of years old, and others that are very current, But watching a dad sing or watching a mother pray or why do you give money to the church? Because I'm reminded that that every time I give financially, it, it sets my understanding of financial blessing in perspective that God is the giver of all things. With whom do you worship? TBC is a diverse congregation. We're a diverse congregation and a collection of ethnicities and ages and socioeconomic realities all over the scale. We're, we're a diverse congregation and our musical tastes and our aesthetic sensibilities. We're a congregation of diversity seeking to embrace both the honor, uh, the ancient wisdom, but also current expressions of that all at the same time. We enter into and we're bound together as a church fellowship. Not not because of a particular style of music or a particular expression of worship. What binds us together? It's the cross of Jesus. It's the cross of Christ. And it's an understanding that He is a God who cleanses and calls us to a commission to be engaged. That's what binds us together. It binds us together in purpose and we're unified through that. So I encourage you, let us keep focused on the things that are most important in our worship as we enter into diversity in the sense of of who we are as a people, seeking the cleansing and the purity of Jesus and the the reality of the cross. We're going to sing together a song that I hope will help sum this up. It's called The Heart of Worship. And uh, I invite you now to open up your hymnal.
hymn number 127, to be reminded about why we come to worship, and it's to be centered in the person and the life and the work of Jesus. This is what we refer to when we talk about the gospel. And it's the call of life and new life that He comes to give. Would you find Him number 127? And would you stand up and with a whole heart, let's sing this to the Lord together. Mm-hmm.